Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Life isn't, it isn't about being happy. I honestly don't think mm. our, the purpose of our existence is to be happy. But I, I think it is to be authentic and to be there as part of a community, society, for each other and working as a whole. Hello, Brownie Gordon here and welcome to the latest series of Mad World. I'm back with more intimate conversations about mental health and this time I'm actually able to speak to people face to face again, which is a joy and a relief as I'm sure you'll agree. And I thought I'd start this series with someone who lit up the entire studio when she joined me for one of the most open, honest chats about mental health that I've ever had the privilege of being part of. And as we were being so candid, there might be a little bit of colourful language. When today's guest was in her 20s, she had a breakdown and was told by her doctor that if she didn't do what she loved, she would never get better. Thank goodness for that doctor's words, because today, Joanna Scanlon is an award-winning actress and screenwriter who has starred in and created some of our best-loved shows. The Thick of It, where she played Terry Cleverly, Getting On, which she co-wrote with Joe Brand, and currently she's Mar Larkin in The Darling Buds of May reprise The Larkins. But earlier this year, she beat off competition from the likes of Lady Gaga and Tessa Thompson to win the leading actress BAFTA for her role in the incredible film After Love. Welcome to Mad World, Joanna Scanlon. Thank you so much, Brani. I'm genuinely absolutely thrilled to be here and talking to you because you are one of my heroines. You really are. Everything you have done in terms of your writing, both in the column and your books, I've read them all. I mean, I've read your column from ever ago, um, <laughs> long before you started your mental health, um, readdressing yourself mm. as a, you know, in terms of your own mental health. And I'm a great, great, big, massive fan. So oh thank you for asking me. I want to look at the producer and say, can we just, can we keep that in? And can we also pull it out and make like a jingle or something? <laughs> uh, because I'm a massive fan of yours. And I'll, I'll ask the, the first question in a bit. But I love how this podcast has come about because I wrote in my Mad World column about how brilliant it was that you won the BAFTA and you talking about your, your breakdown. And I wrote about that and then you emailed me. <laughs> and then I was like, come on the podcast. And here you are and you're launching our new series. Well, it just means so much to me that there is a place where somebody 
and in this case it is you, Bryony Gordon, who have the honesty and the courage to talk about your own experience and the energy to reach out to others because I think our own mental health is, it is the sort of subject du jour, mm. definitely. It's a kind of conversation that hasn't happened up till very recently. But it's also something that I every single person needs a massive amount of help with. Mm. If I was to launch in with a kind of mad world sort of generalisation for myself, it's that you can't do this alone. You know, mm. you can't keep well alone. Mm. Um, and that people who are brave enough to put themselves out there are like a hand reaching out. Mm. And I've felt that from you for years in your columns and in your books. So nice. I was listening to something the other day by some meditation practitioner, and I can't remember her name. Maybe it was Tara Brack. And that thing of we can't do it alone, we evolved as humans from the I to the we. When we first kind of came to be, we had to be paranoid and, you know, look out for rival tribes. But as time's gone on, we've evolved from the I to the we. And she talks about the most perfect way to see that is illness i wellness we mm. and, that, and it sounds kind of a bit trite but it does remind me that because I, I i do have a theory that what all mental illnesses have in common is they work by isolating you mm. you know mm. and they tell you that you need to be alone and that you're a freak and that no one understands what you're going through mm. when the truth is not only does someone understand what you're going through but they're going through what you're going through right now so that does sum up the whole you know instinctively when i'm feeling low I want to isolate and I know I have to do the opposite. Yeah, and actually you've got to build the muscles that can move you from that place of isolation, yeah. the desire to duvet day, mm. smother yourself in custard and, and any number of, you know, not picking us up of the phone, all of that, to be able to move from that into some exterior existence mm. with, with others requires tools, I think. I don't think you can do that without some actual tools and and preparation. I'm going to start with the, I should have, well, I feel like we've already got going and I feel like we're just going to be chatting all over the shop today. But the question I start with each week is how are you really right now? Well, I'm obviously excited. You can hear that. Um, so I'm in a state of, of some excitement. But I'm also feeling pretty good today because I did my strength and conditioning class this morning on Zoom. And... I don't need to tell you that the difference of a day that starts or includes some form of exercise is massively different from one that doesn't, in mm -hmm. my experience. Um, that kind of, I don't, I don't know the science, I can't remember the science, I probably have read it, but whatever happens chemically moves me from a position of solipsism. Mm -hmm. And so that today's one of those days where I have my class early and so I have that baseline feeling of... Mm, can doishness rather than can't doishness. Mm, that's it, isn't it? It starts you off. Are you are you the kind I have to exercise first thing? I can do it later in the day, but then it doesn't serve the purpose for my mental yes. health. Yeah. It, it it can do, you know, I can it can help uh, help train you for a 5k or a 10k or a marathon, but it won't necessarily help me on my mental and um, in how I see the world that morning. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to do my strength training this morning. And I was just really tired. Some days I have this rule that I can do the duvet days lying in custard 
right for like two days. But after that, I really need to take action. <laughs> um, can we go back to that? I mean, I really I love to talk to you about what happened in your 20s. Mm. Um, so you, you know, you grew up in North Wales. I did. How long have we got here? Because I mean, it's we've a got, long time ago. We've got like, a, we, we can just spend all week here. <laughs> you know, we can do it in episodes. We could just make the whole series, Mad World, Joanna Scanlon, <laughs> parts one through to eight. <laughs> I'm, I'm down with that. Binge it, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I grew up in North Wales and I had a... A very, in some ways, a very idyllic childhood. The first half, let's say, so the sort of naught to ten, which was fairly idyllic in terms of the kinds of things that kids like doing. We were outside all the time. I had a lot of animals around me, a lot of nature. I went to a boarding school. Uh, okay, so this is where it begins to go <laughs> slightly awry. Um uh, weekly boarding from the age of six. What? Yes. Sorry. And when I look back on that now, I... Yes. Okay. I think boarding school is a massive subject and one that has uh, relevance to the whole mental health question. So we'll park it, really. But okay. I went to that boarding school from six till nine. But a home life was very neglectful in many ways. My parents were young. And they were out a lot. They were doing a lot of other things. They they were busy all the time. My grandparents lived with us as well. So I'd spent quite a lot of time with my grandparents. And they've always been extremely dear to me, both sets of grandparents. I feel like they're still with me. They're a very big part of my life. And there was the boarding school. Then at nine, I went to another boarding school. And this was in Essex. So now we're looking at the distance between... North Wales and Essex. Which is vast. Which is vast. And I remember going on a train, not alone, but with another girl who must have been about 13, maybe. I was 10, 10 when I went. And the pair of us would just set off from Liverpool Lime Street, which was the nearest sort of big station, go from Liverpool Lime Street down to Euston. Then we would cross London to... Liverpool Street and get on the train to Chelmsford. And we did that alone. I mean... The age of nine. Mm, I can't... I mean, the world has changed so massively. Just to put that in context, that's early 70s, mm -hmm. early 1970s, when most people who are listening wouldn't, wouldn't have been born. So it is a different kind of universe. She can't have been more than about 13. Anyway, so my parents, when they first dropped me off, we didn't go on the train. And this is a very important moment in my life, one of those moments where I made a choice as a child which was never going to stand me in good stead for the rest of my, you know, adult life. So my parents dropped me off and said goodbye in the car park and drove away. And I s actively remember the moment of saying, I will not cry and I will never cry. And I turned, sort of pivoted towards the school and walked towards it and thought, I'm just going to I'm going to make a great success of this. I'm going to turn it into something good and wonderful. And, of course, I didn't because I couldn't cry. Of course, at boarding school, weeping in the dorm at night was, was not something that anybody tended to or anybody really was likely to tend to. So it didn't get you anywhere. 
and I decided I was won't ever feel homesick and I never did feel homesick. But one important other part of that was I remember my mother started to write me letters, of course, you know, from home about the animals or whatever, which were lovely letters, but I never, ever replied. Really? I just refused. I just, not consciously, of course. I was just so angry at some level, but I couldn't feel the anger because I couldn't make the tears. So you'd shut down, essentially. I totally shut down. And and got kind of, you know, very directional, very mono, sort of, I was bright enough to, you know, pass exams easily. I behaved extremely badly. And eventually, three years later, at the age of 13, was was asked to leave this school very nicely. But they rang my parents and just said, we we can't control her, take her away. Really? So Mm. you were essentially expelled? Essentially expelled in the, in the nicest possible and, and way. What, and what when you say you behaved badly, I mean, and also now it's so interesting, isn't it? Because now we realise that children that behave badly are usually acting out to some degree something internally. Yeah. I mean, one of the motivations for behaving badly was that you got time to spend with an adult. So the punishment for behaving badly, this was a lovely convent with actually very, very nice nuns. I'm one of the few people who's never had a bad experience with <laughs> any of any of the nuns that I encountered in either of the convents I was at. But you got this opportunity to be told off by a grown-up. So taken into a room one-to-one with an adult. And I craved some kind of grown-up conversation just to be taken seriously, but also a cu- the natural curiosity in me of wanting to observe adults in their in how they are. Because I think we're looking for models as a, as a child, yeah. as a natural inbuilt kind of desire to look for a model of how to be. And some of these women, I admired them. I thought they were amazing women. Their spirituality was, was something I admired. They were also very community-minded, so charities and all of those kinds of things. These were things these were things I admired. I wanted to be in the presence of one of those people and just kind of absorb who they were. And in the absence of family, that was the nearest I could get. So there was a really big payoff for behaving extremely badly. The bad behaviour went on into the next school. It was a Protestant school. So my parents were very upset by this point that two schools hadn't quite worked and that they were no longer going to be able to educate me as a Catholic. And in those days, that that was something that counted for, you know, it, it was important to being a Catholic and they are very religious. So the Protestant school, which was in Denbyshire, again, a lovely school. I had a very happy time with great friends, was able to do lots of things that make you seemingly fit in at school. I did acting. I did, you know, I, I did a modicum of sport. I did. You were popular. I was popular. Um, didn't have you know, any problems making friends. But at the same time, at some level, didn't want to be there. It was only 10 miles from my parents. This was the point that if I did behave badly, they could just, you know, drive down the road and pull me out of class and have a conversation. So... That bad behaviour really did kick off then because then I was a bit older and it got a bit more, I don't know what you'd call it. Um, I guess there's a kind of sinister side to it. It was darker. The, you know, as, as I, I don't know about you, but when I hit my teens, that darkness came in to my world in a way that was really unfathomable. And I can remember feeling suicidal. I can remember once going into that. We had a strange bathroom with two baths in it. And I can remember going into the bathroom, locking the door, not no one else in the other bath, and taking tablets, taking, I think it must have been 
aspirin or paracetamol or something and taking one after another with this attempt to kind of just to, to, to kill myself. You made an attempt at suicide? Yeah, a suicide attempt. And how old were you? 14. Gosh, Joanna. Something like that. And But I got, so I sort of took one tablet after another and then got to about six or something like that and thought, oh, no, I don't think I want to do that. Uh-huh. And sort of tidied it all away, emptied the bath, came out again. I would never, I mean, I think this is the first time I've ever mentioned or even remembered it. You know, it wasn't, it was so normal to have to manage really huge, dark emotions. It wasn't out of the ordinary for you? I didn't. I mean, I can't remember another occasion I when I did that, but I did behave in certain ways that took me into very dark places and the doctor was called a couple of times. I remember being put on Valium when I was not far after that, maybe another year or so, and took a few, took them for a couple of days. I can't even remember the incident that would have caused that, but I was taken to a doctor. Doctor put me on Valium and I remember taking them for two or three days and feeling so dissociated that I just decided not to take them. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you for sharing that as well, because it's, you know, that's big stuff. And I think actually, just as you were talking about it, I went back to my, you know, the darkness of those teen years. And I thought there was several occasions where I think I behaved in a similar way. And I almost sort of fantasised about my own death. Mm. I think there's two versions of that. There's one that is a sort of romantic, a teen romantic yes. idealization of death, partly because of its remote nature and partly because it's so beautifully expressed in literature. Yeah. And you're, and you're reading, uh, you know, at school, you know, we had a lot of Keats or, uh, you, know, you know, about people who died young and died pretty you know that mm-hmm. that that notion i had loads of posters on my wall of people who died young and died pretty it felt like a kind of a kind of gloriousness but i think there's a difference between that kind of attraction towards the melancholy or the the dramatic from the really really dark stuff mm. which you've written brilliantly about actually which is really quite ugly and doesn't have those um compensations of beauty mm. uh, or romanticism attached and is dangerous. It's genuinely very dangerous mm. to the spirit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I don't really have that many memories of, of of my childhood or teenage years, which I, I find kind of bizarre, you know. Mm. I can remember those dark times. I, I remember for me, the um, and this is a podcast about you, but, you know, for me, I remember just the oblivion of alcohol, of discovering this way in which I could just completely, you know, numb out, but I could also let it all out. So sort of in a blackout, I would be crying or, do you know what I mean? And saying all this stuff that was quite deeply, that you know, hidden, held. Yeah. Yeah, during the week at school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had this bottle of, in the sixth form, I, I went back to school with a bottle of Clinique toner that was actually filled with gin and had these little kind of soirees. No, they wouldn't be the opposite of soirees. Jurees, <laughs> uh, little <laughs> morning events really? on, on Sundays in my room. By then you could have a room of your own instead of the the, weep, the dormitory in which the sound of sniffles would haunt you. Um, and would have this these little parties because alcohol was a huge part of my family life. Mm-hmm. Um my father had started life 
you know, running a brewery. And it was a massive part of my life. My grandmother, one of my grandmothers, was an alcoholic who did, in fact, stop drinking when in her mid-60s or so. But by then, a lot of damage had been done to mm -hmm. the people around her and and herself. And alcoholism was, you know, is a big part of, of our family life and the consequences of it. So I had modelled, you know, thinking about how you model yourself as to be a grown-up. I, so, I so did not like being a child. I did not like having no autonomy. Mm. I was desperate to be allowed to make choices about my own life. And getting to 18 was part of that. And I was looking for ways to be that grown-up person that I so wanted to be. And having a drink mm. was a huge part of that, as was smoking. Mm -hmm. I mean, I smoked all the way through school from... The, the moment I picked up my cigarettes at sort of, I think I was 16. Thereafter, I just smoked the whole way through, you know, out of the window whenever I could. And and had these drinks, little drinks do's, because I thought that was what it was to be a grown-up. This is a bottle, a, a bottle of Clinique toner that um, had gin, but we had no tonic, no ice, <laughs> no orange juice to put in it. Yeah. I think it was pretty disgusting, actually. But it feels grown-up, doesn't it, at the it time? It grown-up, yeah. And, and, and I've, you know, things have changed a little bit, but not really. I mean, there's still massive amount of imagery of what of how sexy, exciting and cool and friendship inducing it is to have a drink. Yeah. And then you went to you. I mean, because then I mean, because what I've read previously is that you, you know, you went to Cambridge and then you spent a lot of your time there just locked in your room drinking and smoking and avoiding people the first year yeah and that was really as a consequence of the trauma of then encountering men which in my girls boarding schools I'd not really done I mean I'd had a boyfriend but it was very limited the relationship when I say limited I mean we had had sex but it yeah. was limited in terms of the real sort of energy of it and he was a lovely person you know I got to Cambridge it was the first year of women at um, the college I went to there was a culture of I, I it's it is a form of intimidation you can look at it so many you can cut this up so many different ways you can say oh it's just 17 18 19 year old boys hijinks or you can say this is actually really malicious intent. And I'm somewhere in the middle of that, or I vacillate between. But it was, a, a, to me, it was a tremendous, tremendous shock. And I found myself needing protection for the first time in my life. All the little tools that I'd used in my girls' boarding school in North Wales weren't going to cut any mustard. Mm -hmm. At Queen's College, Cambridge, where there was a huge amount of um, sophistication and I didn't speak that language at all. None of my parents had been to, none of my parents I've only got to. Um, the two parents I have, <laughs> plus my grandparents, yeah. had been to university. So this was, was, a, was a new experience and they weren't able to really advise me. And I remember ringing my mum up actually in the first couple of weeks saying, um, um, this isn't very nice. And her not being able to do anything to advise me of how to proceed. And the college didn't know how to manage what was going on. It was really difficult. So my retreat was, I, I was reading law at the time. Mm -hmm. I just didn't go to any lectures. I just stayed in my room, drank, had a couple of friends who I would drink with and smoke and 
not wake up till one or two in the afternoon and start the whole thing again by six, you know. It was really hopeless. And the point of going to to Cambridge at all, this was, a, you know, obviously the all the things that people imagine about that university and the Oxbridge experience are not as simplistic as they as one first thinks because of course it's a it's a place where lots of people come with very different agendas and my experience was that I I wanted to be there because my mum had heard of footlights i mean it was as simple mm-hmm. as that you know and you loved acting and i wanted to act so that was the that was the only reason to go there plus i was rejected from all the other universities i applied to so hang on you were <laughs> Because usually it's the other way around, isn't it? Oxbridge, say, and then you go to... No, no, I was rejected from Exeter, Warwick, Manchester, Bristol. And the other one was Cambridge that I put on my five. In those days, you could apply for five. I don't know what it is today. And Bristol, Exeter, Warwick and Manchester all said no. And Cambridge, Cambridge said, come said yes. up. Yeah. But so when, you know, I don't know how much you want to talk about the behaviour that went on and you don't have to, but what when you, I mean, I can imagine what kind of quote unquote hijinks forward slash malicious stuff was, was going on. Well, um, there was a lot of, prior to us arriving at the intake of that year, um, there had been a thing that they called the uh, stag night. So the end of the previous year, all the the boys of the college had got together and held what they called a stag night, which was in those days, you know, hiring a a cine camera, a cine projector and, you know, having blue movies and strippers and stuff like that. That had got ended up getting picketed by the women of Newnham College because that was quite local physically to my college and had therefore become a bit of a, a kind of cause celeb in the newspapers that year. So it, had, but there was a febrile kind of energy around this new intake of women. There were 39 of us. Mm-hmm. We were known as the 39 Steps. There was a whole thing about how, how, how you could climb up the 39 Steps. <laughs> and you can imagine what that involved. Um, there was some really... The very worst of things that could happen did happen. Um, the there was the two incidents I can remember that were this will sound quite mild, but at the time it was worrying. Um, somebody climbed in my win through my window at night. One of the other students, male student, climbed in through my window, and I woke up to find this person lying in my on my floor. It doesn't sound mild at all. That sounds terrifying. It, it was very. It was. It was in the middle of the night. And then, you know, and here's the kicker. That person, then I said, what are you doing? They were drunk, obviously. They kind of came and sat on my bed and then they just looked at me and said, God, you're so beautiful. And I think that way in which, for me as a vulnerable girl, the desire in me to want to be desired matched with the means by which men had access to me was something I couldn't I couldn't navigate. Mm. What did you say? I just remember, I can't at all remember what I said. I can remember how I felt, which was extremely confused. Mm-hmm. I didn't know whether I'd been violated or whether I had been seduced and complimented and had potentially had a boyfriend, which of course I wanted. Yeah. You know, was this was this action of kind of you know, daring do, was this something I was supposed to admire or not? Well, it's sort of something, I mean, 
you know, it's breaking and entering and it's it's a violation, isn't it? But actually so much of 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 that behaviour is sort of romanticised, isn't it, in culture? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, from Rapunzel's Tower through to, you know, rom-coms that you grow up with, that, that sort of male crawling through the bedroom window. Yeah, yeah. I love you so much that I'm going to... But, of course, he didn't love me. He didn't... I mean, he was just drunk. He just walked out and never spoke to me again. It, it, it was a very confusing time. And to be honest, you, you can hear in my voice now still some sense of confusion around mm-hmm. these, these how-do-you-boundary sexual behaviour. How do you do it? How, what are the decisions that you need to make? And I know for the younger generation today, there are many more conversations about consent and what that means and how you will, how you will understand your own feelings. And indeed, I, you know, when I was in my 40s, I did have to do some work on that because I, I was so confused. Mm-hmm. And that whole question of looking at yourself and saying, do I want this? Do I not want this? Or do I potentially want this yes no or maybe Mm -hmm. became a rubric which I began to kind of negotiate much much later in life I needed those tools when I was you know 12 onwards really do you speak to the to to your friends from university now about those yes times funnily enough we had a zoom recently um sadly very sadly one of our the first one of our 39 steps um died of cancer very recently and we had a zoom that a number of the people who were in that year group um participated in and so those those questions come up again plus we've had matriculation kind of things that have been all organized by the university and the great thing about zoom is that people have more people have shown up um during the these covid sessions because the, the idea of getting an invitation from your college, which you have very mixed feelings around, and being actually going, oh, I'm going to go there. Yeah, no. Hang on. <laughs> um, Memories. Yeah. yeah. But with Zoom, you could always <laughs> leave meeting Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at any point. Shut laptop. <laughs> so actually, I do think there is a kind of, um, I think we did all feel, well, I hope I'm not speaking, you know, too exaggeratedly, but I think a number of us certainly felt that it was very tough. Mm-hmm for us. So you switched from law to history? Yes, I switched from law to history. And at the end of that first year, of, I've got a photograph of me lying in that bed of that single duvet smoking. And it kind of is a very good memory of that time, very accurate memory of, of, of how it was. And I then got towards the end of the year and I thought, hang on a minute, you want to act and you haven't even been to a single audition for anything. You've got to, you've got to change this get up, you know, exactly what we we started talking about. Get yourself up out of this bed and go and just audition. So I did. And I got a couple of things that would happen over that summer. So the end of the academic year came and then there's a summer break, quite long summer break when, you know, various things could you could be part of. One of them was a tour of Playboy of the Western World, which we took to Theatre Didwi in Harlech, funnily enough, in my old North Walian uh, roots. And then I also went to Edinburgh. And then from then on, I was just into acting. And we were enormously privileged at Cambridge University mm-hmm. because there are, I can't remember the number of colleges, but something like 30-odd, 36 or something. Each one of those colleges has a dramatic society and each one of those dramatic societies has a budget. So if you think proportionately, the luxury 
of pretty much anybody can apply within their college for, in those days it was about 600 quid, which is still a lot of money, mm -hmm. to put on a play and go and do go and do something, you could do it. That is what the privilege of that kind of education is. It's access to resources, which is what I now, in work that I do within community where I live or elsewhere, I'm always trying to put in place is resources because without resources, you can't achieve anything. Mm. So off I went to Edinburgh, had a lovely um, summer, really enjoyed doing it and carried on auditioning and doing roles, you know, for the rest of the time. I did do Footlights, did two or three Footlights. I foolishly turned down doing the May Week Footlight show. Now I need to decode this for <laughs> people who, for not who didn't go to Oxbridge. <laughs> yes, this needs to be decoded. Yeah. Um, so Footlights have this big review at the end of the year. This review was we'd taken to Edinburgh and it went on a national tour before it went to Edinburgh. And because of the legacy of, you know, John Cleese et al., it, it carried with it the potential to get an equity card. Now, in those days, as an actor, you couldn't work unless you had an equity card. So anybody who did that May Week basically got a leg up into the profession. I chose not to do it, <laughs> partly on the grounds that there was a play I wanted to do, which was more dramatic and serious, and I just wanted to do that and go to Edinburgh doing that instead. And I was, yeah, I was in love with the writer of, of that play as well, which, of course, <laughs> swayed me somewhat. So, but did that have an effect on on whether you went into acting after you left Cambridge or not? I mean, did that one decision sort of change things? For that you? was a sliding door. Yeah, absolutely. If I'd had an equity card, I could have probably got, you know, a, a job doing, um, well, TIE was a big thing in those days, theatre and education. And there was always a need. There was a lot of theatre in education. So you go into schools, you do whatever workshops and plays on either from Shakespeare through to sort of more um, agitprop and you'd go in and you'd do it and I could have got one of those jobs if I'd had an equity card which would have, you know, got me going. So it was a very much key decision. But instead what happened? Instead what happened is I graduated and wrote a lot of letters to agents all of which just said no, no dice, not interested. And I was living in a council flat in Bermondsey there was a theatre locally called Rotherhithe Theatre Workshop and that was run by Dartington College of Arts, which is now defunct or sort of part of Falmouth University, I think. And Dartington College of Arts was a very interesting progressive arts degree and college. And they had a placement in, two placements, one in London, one in Plymouth, and that placement was to work in community theatre or community activities, arts activities. So as a member of that community, qualifying through my residency in the, in the area, I started participating. But I then, of course, started eventually, they said, well, you know quite a bit about drama, so why don't you do, you know, why don't you direct the panto? Why don't you work with the disability group doing this particular thing or the women's group doing that particular thing? So that got me into teaching. And through that, I ended up working at Leicester Polytechnic, teaching a drama degree, so between that, that basically covered that decade, five years of sort of enterprise allowance, working at Rotherhithe Theatre Workshop, not really, not really coping and proper in proper depression. I had had this wonderfully privileged childhood and it as schooling and university. 
Well, it was privileged, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Okay. In, in, in sort of material terms, but one could argue there was there was a certain something lacking from it. There was, yeah, there was a certain area. I mean, my whole emotional life had not been... Was lacking. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just didn't happen. Yeah. It didn't mature. Didn't happen. I mean, that resonates hard. That's... <laughs> Hard, Joanna. So, you know, I'm not, there's no despair, there's no judgment there at all, as I'm no. sure you can guess. So, Bermondsey. Yeah. Proper depression. Proper depression. So much so uh, that I went to the GP who said, hmm, sounds like depression. I'm going to refer you to Guy's uh, hospital, which was my local hospital. And I actually participated in a research program, which was the first ever research program in the UK for what has become cognitive behavioural therapy. Wow. It wasn't called that then. It was called something slightly different. I, I don't know how many participants there were, but I was one of them. And that was really interesting because it was the first time I had to talk about emotional life at all. And actually now looking back on it, it is a shock to me that there was no vocabulary. There was nothing. It was if you were unhappy or upset or seemingly lazy or seemingly unmotivated, what you were told to do consistently was pull your socks up. That was the only vocabulary mm -hmm. I can remember, which was sort yourself out, pull your socks up, snap out of it, Get on with it. and stop being so self-indulgent. So this was meeting this cognitive behavioural therapy programme for the first time with a professor who was, you know, the one who was activating it. She was incredible. And she started to articulate something that I began to see was related to how I felt. But it was only, as a, as a research programme, it was very limited. I think maybe it went on a year, something like that. And there were all the... Uh, tools that were they were beginning to develop around changing how you think and putting numbers attached to how your behaviour might be over a week or all of that those sort of processes, which worked to a certain level of by introduction. It was almost by introduction. But I didn't, alongside it, I was drinking. I was just, you know, hopelessly lying in bed, not able to do anything, couldn't form any relationships it was very it, it was almost a parallel existence where I, I glimpsed a tiny tiny chink of light but couldn't prize that open to make it much wider until when I was 29 I had this massive massive collapse the day that happened um I there was somebody I was I was always madly in unrequited love it was. I would always choose people who. <laughs> Again, that resonates hard. <laughs> absolutely. I think we may have like lived parallel, <laughs> parallel twenties and thirties. Yeah. It was. It was like choose the least likely person. They, they might throw you a crumb every so often, but that'll be it. You know, enough to keep you attached. So I had one of these things going on with a, with a, a bloke, and somebody else told me. A piece of information on this particular day, which then made it very clear to me there was I had absolutely no chance. You know, I I've been deluding myself for some time. 
At which point I can remember, a f- um, I could almost hear it. I felt like my sternum broke. Something in the middle of my chest snapped. It was almost like a physical feeling of snap. I then went home. A friend came round that night. We drank the best of a couple of bottles of wine, smoked the best of a couple of packets of fags, woke up the next morning with what I thought was a hangover, mm-hmm. drove to see my parents because it was a university term holidays and I thought I'll go and spend a week with them at some point and this was that point. Arrived at my parents and said, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to go to, I've just got to go and lie down. I think I'm getting a flu. I think I've got flu. It's something like that. I didn't even sit down and have dinner or anything. I just was straight to bed. Woke up the next morning, started crying. And so it went on day after day after day after day. Just floods of tears, this feeling, physical feeling of headaches or throat, aching muscles. My mum eventually, about day three or four, took me to see the doctor. The doctor said, possible glandular fever. Didn't change, did the tests. And then they came back a couple of weeks after that and said, chronic fatigue syndrome slash ME, um, the very thing that Sajid Javid is just now re-labeling in, in diagnostic terms. And I just didn't get better for months and months and months and months. And the doctor saying, I'm just going to sign you off. And I thought, but I've got to go back to work. I've got a whole degree to teach. There are all these students. I can't possibly. It was also at the time I'd bought a house, but it was it was 91. So the crash of 89 had happened. Mm, and this house was now in negative equity. Yeah. I'd bought it for 34,000, can you believe? But it was now worth 12 or something like that. So I was, I didn't have... Uh, had no security. Had no security. And I had a huge debt. I think debt is, an, and money addiction um, goes hand in hand mm-hmm. with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the same self-esteem issues that mm. Are also related to drinking and any other kinds of addictive behaviours. So I had a situation in which I felt trapped, didn't have enough money to go on, to live on, felt I needed to work, but couldn't work. And eventually I just put down the gauntlet that I had picked up and said, I can't do it anymore. And the doctor convinced me that that was the thing to do. And I stopped just gave up. And that cigarette and that drink that night before was the last alcohol I ever drank. Really? Mm. You just put it down? Well, I had what, um, in one of the big pieces of literature about alcoholism, there is a paragraph at the beginning where they talk about, I have known very occasionally somebody to have had their desire to drink taken from them. Yes, 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 Instead yes. of them having to give it up and yeah, put the drink surrender. down, that it, it's been taken from them very occasionally. But, you know, this doesn't happen very often and most people have to actively make those mm-hmm. decisions. I think I'm miraculously in that category of it was just the desire to drink was taken from me. It just evaporated. So... You mentioned earlier that labels are important. And, and, and if you don't want to answer this, please just tell me to fuck off. Would you, do you, would you put a label on that? Would you call yourself an alcoholic or an addictive drinker? I have called myself an alcoholic at times, yes. Yeah. In certain situations, I've said yeah. I am an alcoholic without 
having gone through a lot of what many of my friends who are yeah. would also say that call themselves alcoholics have gone through and that is simply because it was I was 29 rather than 39 yeah, 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 yeah. or if I'd carried on it would have got worse and worse so you had your last drink and your last cigarette mm. wow in July 1991 that's amazing so we're coming up for 30 years we're over 30 years mm. Mm. I'm very old. I'm very old, Brian. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Uh, you're, 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 so you're 29. So I was very ill. So I was, I actively had to, I mean, I think from the moment I was diagnosed and, and I put down that gauntlet of life and just said, I've got to stop. I've got to start again. I'm going back to basics. It was no accident that I was with my parents mm-hmm. when that happened because we had quite a lot of rebuilding of the relationship that had been ruptured at the age of six. Yeah. So it was very important to kind of, you know, for me to talk with them about the fact that I had been absolutely heartbroken by going to boarding school. And you can hear the anger still there. You know, it was heartbreaking and it needed a massive amount of repair. And I think, I don't know a single other friend of mine who's gone to boarding school that wouldn't say the same. Mm. And perhaps now I know that I gather boarding schools are very different these days, but it was particularly harsh, of course, in those days Mm. and and for boys even worse than girls. But the damage is absolutely huge and needs a lot of work to unpick. So I was with my parents. I was able to do all that crying. My mum was mending me with lentil soup I mean it was she was literally nourishing me with this soup and every day I walked the dog that was about it that was as much as I could manage then I got a little bit better started doing yoga started doing a photography course so got back a bit in touch with creativity and a little bit in touch with you know my body which were two important things but one of the things that was manifesting in mental health terms during this episode was that I was convinced that I didn't have as I'd been told, ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, that in fact I had AIDS. Right. I was 100% convinced that this was a misdiagnosis. Right. So I insisted on having AIDS test. Yeah. I went to the hospital. I had my AIDS test. had to wait for ages, I think two weeks, um, which was torture for the result. Went in for the result and the doctor said to me, your test is, you know, my heart in my mouth because I was so convinced mm. that was the problem. He said, negative. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And I thought about it and I thought, I think that might be wrong. Yeah. Okay. I think that might be wrong because, and I came up with some quite elaborate way in which I was convinced that was wrong. And he said to me, okay, you can take another test. I have had some people back into this room 15 times having their tests redone. And when he said that, just by chance, it was a lucky thing that he said to me, I thought, oh, okay, I get this. So this is the part of my brain that is absolutely irrational, Mm -hmm. being put to purpose by the other part of my brain. And now I have a proper split and I can see one side watching the other side consistently over and over. I also, this, the more, the more, let's call it wiser side of the brain was saying to me, if you have this conviction that you have AIDS right now, This is because you are experiencing some form of sexual guilt Mm -hmm. manifesting in this form, which is not surprising given that I'd had a very religious upbringing Mm -hmm. and I had also 
lived through a period of time which was post-pill and pre-AIDS. Yeah. When the badge of womanhood was to be having as much sex as you possibly can with as many people yeah. as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And it was only when AIDS hit the headlines through those, you know, the, 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 the famous adverts. famous adverts. Don't that, die of ignorance. Don't die of ignorance. That there was an actual, I remember thinking there's an excuse now. I can say no. And I hadn't, I personally hadn't found a way to be able to say no prior to that because I thought in order to be a manifest woman, woman I needed to be sexually active. And if you look at any of the literature from that period, you'll see that that is very present in it. So I'm not saying I was hugely promiscuous in that time, but I was. I would have been if I could have been, you know, mm-hmm. if anybody had fancied me, which they didn't tend to. <laughs> so I realised that all of that was in my package mm-hmm. of my deluded AIDS diagnosis. I, I mean, I, I, you mentioning that has brought me to tears because, I mean, I in the early 90s, and I was, I was only like 11, 12, 13, I was convinced that I was dying of AIDS. And that was the first manifestation of my, of my obsessive compulsive disorder. But it was such a frightening... Well, I think, you know, as a little girl, that would have been really, you would have been really vulnerable because yeah. the beginnings of sexual awakening, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. of sexual desire, the physical side of puberty, that kind of voracious mm. part of... I think people think it's only boys that go through that. Yeah, but it's really not true. No. But this sort of like, you know, kind of hot feeling also feels dangerous. And shameful. And shameful. Mm. Oh, well, it's a lot of shame put on it. But I then thought I need psycho- psychoanalytic therapy. I'd read enough literature to know that that probably this cognitive behavioural work that I'd done in my 20s, a little bit of it, was probably not going to meet the deeper uh, convictions around sexuality and everything else that I'd experienced about creativity that was suppressed and, you know, sense of self and sense of success as well, all of those questions. So I decided I must go into some longer-term form of therapy. I didn't have any money, as I've just mentioned. So I discovered that there was a co- that was a program you could join or be accepted onto the British Association of Psychotherapists had a low cost scheme but in order to be on the low cost scheme of the British Association of Psychotherapists you had to qualify and this meant being judged by a psychologist to be relevant so i thought right that's fine that's what i'll do i need to get better i want to get better so i went to my local hospital and the same hospital that the AIDS test had happened in. And I saw a clinical psychologist for a year. And he fell asleep in my sessions every single week, within seconds, (laughs) within seconds. His head would be dropping like somebody on the motorway who who needs a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't mind. I don't care. He doesn't have to listen to me because I'm I'm eyes on the prize. I'm going to get into something that I can't, that is affordable. And duly, that is what happened. And at the same time, because of my fears about this misdiagnosis, Mm -hmm. they sent me to the consultant physician, Dr. Bloodworth. Dr. Bloodworth had done any number of other tests on me. I can remember doing my reflexes and my knees going up and whatever, and he sat me down. And this is the famous doctor that I talked about Mm. on the, after the BAFTA win. And he said... Hmm. Ask me a couple of questions. I think he asked me, 
what do you dream about? And did you ever have any other job or desire for a job? So I said, well, I, I did hope to be an actor at some point. And he kind of paused for a moment and then said, okay, if you don't go back to acting, you will be ill for the rest of your life. It was a completely bald statement. And I probably wouldn't have remembered it, except that it went like an arrow into my heart. I thought, I'm afraid, I think that might be true. And at the time, the last thing I wanted to do was unpick everything that I'd been set up, mainly my numbness, mainly my unfineness. That nobody, having said all this about my depression, and you know, nobody would have known it. Mm. Nobody would. Know, I had a really, really good exterior. I seemed fine, and nobody would have been able to tell the difference. I was so embarrassed. I mean, so embarrassed about all my friends. Well, not all my friends, but a number of my friends were extremely successful by that point. I didn't want to be somebody sort of just you know, coming after them and saying, oh, well, actually, I think I'd like to do that too. I want a piece of your pie. And mm. just felt excruciating. And in fact, pride, which this is due to, has been a massive, massive barrier mm. to me getting well. I don't like people to see me as being weak or needy or, yeah, having any needs at all. That feels... Totally shameful and embarrassing to me. Really? Mm. That seems an astonishing thing to hear from you because you, I mean, you're being so beautifully open. Well, I've learnt, I've learnt that that doesn't serve me. Mm. So I have to work really yeah. hard in the, in the opposite direction. And, you know, I have a very lovely and happy marriage. And bringing my neediness into the that marriage and that relationship is the only thing that makes it work. Mm -hmm. Because well, neediness as well. Like, I hate that term, you know, like as well, because it's like you're needy. And, but we all have needs. We all have wants. I remember once doing an event about mental health and this mother stood up and she asked a question and she said, my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter claims to have depression, but I think she's just attention seeking. And my response was, well, give her some fucking attention then. You know, we shame this, don't we? Mm. And actually, as you say, those that's your heart telling you what you want and what you need. Mm. They are basic needs. And it's beautiful that you can bring them in now instead of... But what is that? What is the positive word that is neediness? That's... You know, that it's... I can remember once talking to somebody and she, she was saying, there's nothing wrong with asking a partner for reassurance that is an okay thing to do. They don't have to give it to you. Mm. But it has to be okay to say, I need reassuring that I'm, uh, you know, that you love me. Mm. Even that is hard. I couldn't find the words then because mm. it's it gets so buried. The idea, like that little girl who pivoted and walked away from my parents at the boarding school and said, I am fine and I'm always going to be fine and no one's going to see it differently, is the one who still now you know, many, many years later, 50 plus years later, finds it difficult to find the words mm. for, I need you to tell me you love me. Mm. I love you. Thank you. I Brian. think I really do. So he says this to you. And when I heard you say this, you know, on the radio, just after you'd won your BAFTA, it struck me that this is the truth, isn't it? Is that like, when we are doing what we want, and we are addressing our needs, our mental health, 
will always improve. Absolutely. I'm not saying everyone has to go off and have this sort of what sound like, okay, being an actor. Okay, so he said to me, if you don't go back to acting, you'll be ill for the rest of your life. That's not a phrase that's going to work for many people. But I think that the nugget that is applicable to everybody is you have to be in yourself, living a sort of authenticness and not living something that other people or other people's as parts of you that have been internalized telling you to do. And finding that out is a very big part of growing up. Mm. I mean, I was still very immature at 29. A lot of people get there a lot sooner than that. But the living an authentic existence. Get there a lot later. Yeah, and, and it can be a lot later too. It can be a lot and later. And some people never get there. It's so sad to think that. Because I do believe everybody's life is valuable and everybody has something that they've contributed even if they, to, them, to themselves and others, even if they're not aware of it. Yeah. But in terms of mental health, that is a personal uh, journey. The healthier you become, the more able you are to y- utilize the t- identify the tools that work for you and then use them. That said, it can s- blindside you. You know, so you think you've you've got it sorted and you're not going to have this deep depression or anxiety episode or any other manifestation of mental unwellness. And then you wake up in the morning and it's there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, recovery is not linear, is it? No, no. <laughs> that spiral, I'd love, I love the, the, the model of the spiral because mm. you come back to the same place, yeah. but differently. You yeah. know, the, the, the sort of the point on the spiral and hopefully it is going in the upper direction. The right direction. And yeah. I think people often think, because again, we have this notion that we have to be cured or, you know, and then we move on. But actually, it's not a failure to to have a period where you are in mental ill health you know mm. it doesn't necessarily each time it's as painful as it is you do learn something new you do i hate it because it's such a because anyone listening now who is in the deepest darkest depths of depression you just want to be able to provide with them with the thing that's going to instantly lift them you know like, yeah. I wish there was a pill that did that. But it is it is that thing of like, I, I really firmly believe a lot of growth actually happens. It doesn't happen in the light. Growth happens in the darkness, right? Yeah. yeah, it does. It does. And sometimes it's important to have that duvet day in which you go into the, the very sadnesses in your being. Because you also do need a dialogue with yourself about the fact that life isn't, it isn't about being happy. I honestly don't think mm. our, the purpose of our existence is to be happy. But I, I think it is to be authentic and to be there as part of a community, society, for each other, and working as a whole. And that necessitates engaging in oneself with the darker elements. And sometimes it takes a day of lying under a duvet, feeling that misery and sense of loss before you can, you know, pick up the phone or reach reach out or get up or make yourself a cup of tea. I mean, I think, you know, we're talking about an instant pill and there are things, there are, there are definitely things that you can do. Mm. Um, I remember a friend of mine recovering from alcoholism, you know, his sponsor had always said, just get up and 
clean your teeth. Mm-hmm. Make your bed. And that has really stayed with me as a kind of, it can be as simple as just walking to the basin and cleaning your teeth. And it will move you. It will shift you. Yeah. You go to a new a new horizon. And and otherwise, you know, you, you pile in friendship or enough sleep, decent quality of food, those kinds of basics, um, which, you know, other podcasters talk about a lot as well on the medical side. And there are lots of ways in which you can just activate yeah. those. But I do at the same time think it's simplistic to just think you can avoid being deeply unhappy totally at agree. times. We're not, I mean, I, I often think this is we teach children a lot how to be happy, but they don't need to be taught that. What we really need to do is teach children how to be sad. I mean, we, you needed to be taught how to not shut down and turn away when you were nine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's so important because happy is great. I mean, let's not let's not beat around the bush here. <laughs> it feels fucking great. But it isn't it isn't realistic as a kind of permanent way. And I think when we put it up there on this pedestal, it means when we feel anything else, we feel like we're failing. Mm, mm. When we're not, we're just mm. humans. It's just being a human being. When I was um, at a later point in my life, I worked as a volunteer for at Wormwood Scrubs Prison. Really? Uh, yes, in the, on a play programme for looking after children during prison visits. Okay. And it was a fascinating thing to do. And I worked with this wonderful woman called Carmela, who was the runner of, the, who ran this play scheme. So it was, a, a, you know, in and amongst the prison visits, the children would ha- just have activities to do. And we were the supervisors, Carmela and me, or whatever, you know, as a rotor. And she was brilliant about children, absolutely extraordinary. And one of the things she said was, when a child comes in and maybe they start to cry or whatever, or they start to shout or whatever, and Actually, to be fair to these children, they were extremely well behaved in general. They were lovely, really lovely. She said, all you need to do is to mirror that. So if a little boy is sitting there crying his heart out, you just say, I see that you're crying. I'm here. I see that you're crying. I see that you're sad. And that will move the emotion on. And that's what we are for each other as witnesses. Mm. Just being witnessed is a huge part of enabling the other person to change. Mm. That was the that doctor saw you, didn't he, that mm. day? Was his name Doctor Doctor Bloodworth? Is he still alive? I think he might be actually. Oh, I think we need to give him a, some sort of award, don't we? <laughs> Shall like I a... take the BAFTA round? <laughs> don't, don't, I mean, like, we'll give him a, because that's a beautiful thing, and you know, from that. Someone saw you and then that enables you over a period of time. Because also that's the other thing, isn't it? You were 29 then and you're what? How old are you now? 60 now. 60 now. You know, we have this notion, don't we, of uh, rises and falls and all of that stuff. And actually life is more, it's sort of a bit, you can't see, this is a podcast, but I'm waving my arms up and down (laughs) in a slightly manic way. You know, it's it's slower than that. It isn't as extreme as that. And of course, this sounds, you know, like when we talk about these these periods in isolation, that does sound extreme. But as you say, this this went on the whole way through your twenties, mm. you know. And it was mm. it wasn't really, was it, until you were sort of thirty four? Yeah. That you that you really, you know, got yourself back into acting. Yeah. And then there you are at sixty, 
winning the lead, leading actress BAFTA, which is, you know, and I also think, you know, awards, of course, they don't matter. I'm sure you're going to say this, you know, but I love that, that it's, there seems to be a, you know, there's a direct correlation between the work you've done on yourself and your sense of success. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I guess you just need to learn the vocabulary of yourself. And a lot of that, it helps with acting, actually, knowing yourself. And I think, I know, didn't go to drama school, as you know, but a lot of people didn't like about drama school is that it, it forces, you know, there's a sort of almost psycho kind of examination that goes mm. on. You need to know yourself in order to be able to act, which I think maybe Stanislavski kind of began that as an idea. And there's a grain of truth in it, but trying to do that when you're 18 or 19, my goodness, I wouldn't... Uh, it's not the time, is not it? Not advisable. <laughs> no, not advisable. But later on, actually, to knowing yourself more, I think, is a useful tool as an actor. I mean, I, I still have a constant dialogue with myself and my emotional, you know, day, which has, you know, is always... I don't know about you, but every single day feels massive mm-hmm. you know I, I look I'm working with children at the moment and I look at look at them and then maybe there's tears emerge or there's rage emerges and actually that's not true of these children but I see that in children's behavior a lot and I think I'm the same as you that's exactly how I feel inside I'm screaming or I'm sobbing or I you know it feels I, I mean maybe that makes me an unusual person I think you Brian here with a similar ill I doesn't I think you I, listen I think we're all on the same I, there's nothing unusual in this this studio <laughs> but adult behavior doesn't require you to be screaming shouting tantruming or, or ridiculously laughing either just laughing till till you wet your pants I mean those sorts of things are moderated out of adult existence but inside I still feel all of that Mm -hmm. and I have learned just ride it you know just sit with it just ride it it will change in two minutes and it's okay it's actually okay but you've got to give yourself a forum in which you can express I think those huge, huge feelings. And of course, acting is a very useful place because there's a lot of drama goes on, jeopardy and conflict, and you can let it all out in that environment. And that's why I believe creative practices of all sorts, whether it's dancing, singing, you know, jumping out and sport to running, where your passions are, are allowed out. I mean, I can't say how much I admire your running endeavors I really really think they're incredible as a, and you need a, a proper sports award <laughs> you do you no, need a sports never award. got one at school ever <laughs> it's coming it's coming <laughs> maybe we could go I'm like I don't know what the sport I don't know what the award would be just try, she's tried hard <laughs> she's tried hard and she's actually shown it that that sports are available to everybody and that joy of sport the passion I mean I I uh, the running that I do is very much not even running, but the exhilaration and the being able to express that exhilaration, running down a hill when it's easy mm. and you've done the hard bit, climbing, running up the up hill the, oh, and you're coming down and they look out and there's this incredible view and you can cry and you yeah. can go, oh, this is so amazing. Yeah. And, it mo- and again, it moves you on. So, I mean, what I'm saying is that big emotions are a part of everybody's life and repressing and shutting down and closing off and dissociating are all ways in which you will end up with that coming out 
negatively and you've got to sideways sideways and you've got to find a way to be that passionate human being that you are in some form of expression so what are the things you talked about having a toolkit you know Mm. so on practical terms what are the things so you you know acting creating is really important to you you write you have your strength and conditioning classes what are the Mm. other things Mm. that keep you going right okay so I mean these are so basic but they've become and they're 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 commonplace now in terms of like the the mental health toolbox conversation but well actually this one isn't no drink that you know uh, if I was drinking I wouldn't not be listen Neither of us would have got here today no. if either if we no. were drinking. <laughs> Just, it wouldn't so, have happened ever. And no drugs either, by yes. the way. Yes. <laughs> the, two, the two things can go hand in hand. Oh, they do, yes. Uh, sleep. Yeah. Hugely important for me. And even if it's interrupted sleep with anxiety episodes in the night, which I can suffer from from time to time, is finding a way to relax through those and mm. realise that rest, if you can't sleep, rest that's a brilliant bit of advice. That was given to me by actually somebody who was a, for, a former heroin addict. Really? And, that, and when I, it was an episode, very bad insomniac episode, and she just said, it's okay, rest. Just, just rest through those insomniac hours, which I find, I find that helpful thought myself. Um, exercise is that big transformer, that pill that you just mentioned, the magic you know, you never want to do it. I never want to do it. Oh, my goodness. Do I ever, ever want to go anywhere near any exercise? No, I don't. But I feel... You never I've regret doing never, it. Never, never regret it. Swimming was a very big part of my life for a long time. Long distance swimming I particularly loved. And then I started running and I do some, you know, well, let's call it shuffling. But it's very, very it transformative. It sounds much like that. my kind of running. In fact, maybe I need, we need to go for a run together. Well, I, a shuffle I, together. I would just be. I, I don't want to slow you down. No, you wouldn't slow me down. <laughs> you wouldn't. I, I. 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 There's no one in the world who could slow me down. <laughs> I am the world's slowest long distance runner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I calculated that if I did do a marathon, it would be something like eight hours or something. Perfect. Crazy. Perfect. Let's um, do it next year. This year, <laughs> London Marathon. Um, so I do think exercise is a really big part of it. I think friendship. Mm-hmm. I think friendship is so important. And this is something I regret about technologies taking us into the world of text. In the old days, I would have a weekly long chin wag with yeah. each of my friends. And that just doesn't happen now. Yeah. And we get, we get to meet, of course, when we can. Uh, but that old chinwag on the phone. Oh, my God. Where you talk for hours. 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 Hello, and, you. Yeah. And you go, I mean, in the old days, it sort of used to go over the hour point. It cut out at one. You know, <laughs> landlines used to cut out and you had to ring again in order. But you go into your second hour, you know. I think friendship and chatting because um, now me, I think very important with social media we feel like we're like in touch with people all the time and actually we're in touch with people far less aren't we mm. and we're not really listening no it's a one way it's a one way communication no. i don't do social media so that's another one of my mental health things because as an actor and you you get a lot of criticism <laughs> of course that's you know you'll put yourself up there to have to be the the bullseye in the dartboard and people want to hit you. So I just have stepped away from that. 
The first time I went on, I had a Twitter account, the very, very early days of it. Somebody else set it up for me. And I went on, have I got news for you? And I thought that, you know, when I got home after the recording, I thought, I'm going to, or when it went out, I'm going to have a little look at this. And they all just said, oh, who's that fat cow? (gasps) I hate Twitter. (laughs) I just... Who are these assholes? Well, that's what it... That's, so I thought, OK, well, I don't actually need that in no, my life. No, you don't. No, I no, don't no. need that. So, you know, I don't want... So I try and avoid the places where I'm going to be putting myself out there to be abused or mm-hmm. insulted or offended or whatever. And I try, conversely, not to put that out there from my side either. Yes. You know, not to be publicly critical of... of um, people who really frankly don't deserve it mm-hmm. um yes yeah, so i would say those are my that's my basic toolbox and honesty there's the other one trying to keep as honest as possible and that's where you talked about being open but that openness goes hand in hand with honesty mm-hmm. i don't want to be masked i don't want people to not know what i'm thinking but at the same time i have to have the tools to be respectful in the way i communicate what i'm feeling you have been so honest today. You have been beautifully, respectfully honest. And I'm so grateful for you to cut because you've you've moved me. You've you've summed up so much of what is important in life, actually. And I just I'm so thrilled at your existence and your ever continuing success. And um yeah, thank you, Joanna Scanlon, and thank you for coming on Mad World. Right back at you, Brownie Gordon. Thank you. Oh, that was, I need to come and give you a hug. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners, and I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form, so if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld, and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116 123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 3393. That's 0300 123 3393. They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.